0: have these good medications that save people's lives and yet there are people who restrict them because they feel like they are the moral authority on what is right and wrong it's gross it's it's totally inappropriate and I, i think that it's people acting in a clinical capacity when they don't have clinical knowledge to be doing so you're listening to narcotica a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the
1: people who use them
2: Hey narcotica listeners, this is Zach, and we've got a great episode lined up for you. You ever wonder what the hell pharmacists even do? To lay people, pharmacists are the gatekeepers standing between us and our drugs. But they can be, and arguably, maybe, should be, much more than that. Even though just about everyone has experience with pharmacists some good some really really bad the profession is kind of a bit of a mystery like what's going on behind that counter you stand there waiting for your drugs while somebody in a white coat typically like blank and expressionless types really fast on a computer after asking you your name and your birthday best case scenario they ask if you have any questions about the drug and you say no and they ring you up and you're out of there with what you need but this is america and healthcare is a business and monolithic pharmacy chains are seeking profits So, on today's episode of Narcotica, we're going to talk about what the corporatization and consolidation of the pharmacy means for all of us, and we're going to talk about the stigmatization that people who use certain drugs experience in pharmacies and by pharmacists. And so, what better way to demystify this ubiquitous profession than by talking to an actual pharmacist? But one last thing before we get there, if you like the show, there are a few ways you can support us. You can rate us on iTunes. Apparently that helps others find the show. And though we'll always put out episodes for free, you can still donate to us and support us on Patreon at patreon.com narcotica. Of course, there's a pandemic and money is tight. So, you know, give whatever you can or don't all good. You know, any support is always super appreciated by us. All right. So the OG crew is here for this one, Troy, Chris, and me. And we have a really amazing guest, clinical psychiatric pharmacist, Jessica Marino. Jessica, welcome to Narcotica.
0: Hey, guys. How's it going?
3: Hi, Jessica. Thanks for joining us.
0: Hey. Thank you all for inviting me
2: yeah we you know have wanted to have a a pharmacist come on the show for a while. And yeah, I think before we like you know get into the weeds about pharmacy and drugs and and harm reduction, uh, I just have one question to to kick things off. What's it like to be around all these awesome drugs all the time i I could never be a pharmacist because I would just be super high all the time, I guess
1: yeah, same here.
0: It's a good question. And I think that this actually gets us into some good topics that we'll be able to branch off into. But really important point of clarification is actually that I don't work in a pharmacy. I am a clinical pharmacist. And what that means really is that I work predominantly in a clinical setting. So my current position is within primary care. You go to see your primary care doc. If you were to report, you know. I'm having some symptoms of depression or anxiety or anything like that, the couple clinics that I serve are able to say, you know, we have this person who specializes in psychiatric medications that's on site today that we can have you speak with. And they'll do what's called a warm handoff, which means they just kind of introduce me to that patient. And then I'll do like a one-on-one patient visit with them Um, in the same way that you would go and see um, a, a typical physician or a you know a therapist or a psychiatrist. Those are kind of the encounters that I actually do most of. And so I think that's an important point of distinction because for one, there's a little bit I'll be limited to from like a firsthand experience um, to, to speak to when we talk specifically about more of the, the pharmacies where people are surrounded by drugs all day. But I think it also gives Need an opportunity to shine a little light on the various things that pharmacists are able to do, and the opportunities that we have to really improve the care for people with substance use disorder.
3: When you you mentioned a clinical setting, you work uh, are most of your clientele largely Medicaid-funded, you know, patients that are uh, that are on subsidies. Like we, we kind of have clinics like that that are combined pharmacy and you know, primary care. That are you know in lo- lower income neighborhoods in Philadelphia.
0: There are clinics that employ pharmacists um, that are just like that, more like um, community, like so, like community mental health clinics. Sometimes employ pharmacists like that, and then other types of community-based clinics that are mostly um, funded through um, like federal or state funding. But no, um, actually, where I work is a typical not-for-profit. Private large healthcare um, institution throughout the entire Metro Detroit area. They have like some odd two hundred different outpatient clinics, and I just work in um, really predominantly two of their primary care clinics.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: We do. I would say I think that the patient population has. I think there it's like forty to fifty percent um, folks um, receiving insurance through Medicare Medicaid though.
3: Maybe a I mean. The reason I asked is just because, and this would, be, this would be higher up the food chain than you, and like the, there seems to be kind of a two-tiered system of oversight when it comes to patients that go to clinics like that, that will have a pharmacy attached, that are drug tested every month, that are required to go to therapy, you know, and then sure. if you have enough money or you have, you know, Cadillac insurance, you can go to a, you know, a psychiatrist and get medication management and just go once every three months or something, you know, and,
2: I was going to sort of yeah, ask a bunch of the questions about like just the the basic, you know, role of, of pharmacy in all of our lives, you know, from like the, the standpoint of like, you know, someone working at CVS. But I actually think it's cooler that you do a much more like uh, perhaps up close and personal type of pharmacy. And I think that really gets into actually the much deeper like parts of this conversation um, about the role of pharmacists in in harm reduction, in, in drug policy. And one of the the things that I hear most often from US pharmacists is just like what a missed opportunity there there kind of is with respect to pharmacists like role in I don't know, like working to prevent overdoses or administering methadone or like just the there's such a, a difference between how pharmacy works in the, in the U.S. versus like in, in Canada. And I was wondering, if, you know, Detroit, I guess it's close to Canada, but still America. Like, do you know or do you have experience like sort of seeing how other countries practice versus like how it's done here?
0: Such a good point. I I did talk with Twitter friend Tali Cahill, um, who's the harm reduction nurse in Ontario, and she was talking about how pharmacists in or a lot of pharmacies throughout Canada will receive some sort of extra certification to be able to dispense methadone um, for folks with opioid use disorder, um, buprenorphine with way fewer restrictions than we see here in the States. Um, And all they have to do is go to like an educational seminar. And it's not like, it doesn't sound like it's this um, extra hurdle that folks have to jump through. It's almost more of an opportunity for them to be able to serve this patient population. She did mention how, There's certainly a little bit of financial incentive for the pharmacies to be dispensing those medications. You know, I'm kind of of the mindset that if you need to give a carrot to provide somebody better care, then at least that person's getting better care. So, um, you know, it seems like such low-hanging fruit and it would be such an easy thing to implement to just... You know better help the people who have opioid use disorder rather than you know treat them like these criminals and you know just be so discriminatory to them on a daily basis. And I don't I, I didn't really look into a lot of the other countries and what their practices are, but my understanding is too that it, it's kind of more similar to Canada and that pharmacists can do a lot more. And what that really highlights too is it wouldn't just be what we're used to in the states. Is we go to a pharmacy, and we fill a prescription. We are, you know, constantly in this like fast-paced day to day where we want to be able to go to a drive-through, not talk to anybody, get handed a bottle of pills, and drive away. And really, that's I don't think that was ever supposed to be the role for pharmacists in in this country or in the world. Um, we have a lot of knowledge to bestow upon people and we just don't get the opportunity to utilize it to our full capacity, especially I would say pharmacists in those more like community-based pharmacies, um, which we call like distributed pharmacy. And there is this push to get people who work in those uh, types of roles to do a lot more, to do a lot more clinical work. So that might look like you know, administering immunizations, even doing some like medication reviews for for patients, counseling patients a lot more in-depthly on the medications that they take. And then, you know, what we're talking about, which would be so great, would be, you know, providing people with with methadone treatment which is actually for the record completely illegal in the united states no pharmacy can dispense methadone to a patient with opioid use disorder
2: wow that's so crazy like it's just let's just pause on that for a second like this drug that is just so effective and like yes of course there's risks but like tylenol has fucking risks it's just it's just wild
0: it's unbelievable um it's it's the medication that we have the most data for in its efficacy for the treatment of opioid use disorder you know we can we can talk all day about how great buprenorphine is but there are a lot of people whose lives are saved and who are able to live completely full fulfilling and functional lives who need methadone for their treatment and then to to relegate them to having to go to these clinics that are only accessible in you know highly populous areas and they have to go there at five in the morning and stand in line to get their dose is is so unfair it's so I just can't ever it's so just ridiculous how we we force a whole segment of our society to do that when we don't do that for anybody else who has any other conditions at all
3: and it's fair to point out that if you're prescribed methadone for pain, which many people were yes. for a time uh, you are perfectly free to go to your pharmacy and, and get it and and there are there are certainly doctors that will make that concession with harm reduction but but on the flip side of that you have none of the like resources and time at your disposal, and yet you have the responsibility under the law. It's something called corresponding responsibility. Maybe you can explain to our, our listeners what that means uh, for a pharmacist.
0: Yeah, certainly. And so, and this is where, you know, we, we had kind of mentioned, and I think that this had started with a, a Twitter thread where where we may have been talking about pharmacists being the gatekeepers of drugs. And I don't think that pharmacists become pharmacists because they want to be the gatekeepers of drugs people who are working in those community-based pharmacy roles end up kind of getting bestowed that role upon them. And it's, it's because as we're going through our educational training, we are really like, I mean, the fear of God is instilled upon us um, that if we make any mistake with any controlled substance at any point in our career, we could be audited by the DEA. And if anything comes up that doesn't look great, then we could, you know, have charges filed against us. We could go to prison, but they do all of these things to just basically scare the shit out of us. And, um, there's, it's almost like we have no other option than to, you know, follow the, the rule of law, um, exactly as it is written. So, when a physician you know writes a prescription um, depending on the different settings that you're in the average person who works at like a cvs doesn't have access to a patient's medical record so a prescription will come in and they'll have no reason no no reason to know why that person is being prescribed that medication and that's in and of itself not the safest setup it's not great to to receive a, a prescription for literally anything and maybe it's a blood pressure medication but if that person doesn't have high blood pressure, then they shouldn't be receiving that blood pressure medication. And so when we don't have access to that information, which is a limitation of our healthcare system writ large right now, um, that automatically puts us behind the eight ball. And then we, um, so, th- so we're, we're forced to, you know, evaluate the appropriateness of each prescription, the accuracy of each prescription, and, and when everything looks okay, then we can say okay yes let's fill this um and it's it's a good thing that pharmacists are serving as that you know kind of like check and balance on on this system that's the whole reason why pharmacists are one of the main reasons that pharmacists exist in the first place you know way back Went you know, hundreds of years ago, there was always kind of this understood separation between the person who diagnoses the problems, that is the physician, and then the person who compounds the treatments, the medical treatments for those problems. And that is what we would say today is a pharmacist. Um, it protects patients against, you know, or, or society, I guess, against conflicts of interest, because you don't necessarily only want your physician prescribing all of the, like, or I'm sorry, dispensing the medical treatments that you receive, because what if that physician is, you know, getting kickbacks or has some sort of, has stock in Pfizer or something, Um, that's not a great setup. Um, But then it also is a a more importantly, a safety check, Um, just to have another set of eyes, look at a medication order and say, yep, that is gonna be safe, that is the right dose we can give that to this patient. And that setup is pretty much consistent throughout all of healthcare, not just in the outpatient setting when a physician writes a prescription and sends it to a pharmacy, but in the inpatient setting too, when physicians will write medication orders, there every single order that gets written or almost every order that gets written on um, inside of a hospital also gets reviewed by a pharmacist to make sure that it is accurate and appropriate for the medical condition that that patient has. So there's this, you know, of course, like that kind of gives us a little bit of that gatekeeping responsibility just to serve as that check and balance, but it should be more um, the, I think the attitude behind it should be more um, always in the patient's best interest. And I would say less um, out of concern for our, you know, licenses being revoked and and that. And I think that the fear that the DEA has put upon practicing community pharmacists has has skewed that prioritization a bit.
3: I I did FOIA the DEA once to see if they could give me any insight into how they make their determinations about what pharmacies are over-prescribing, whether there's any factors like, you know, the level of cancer patients in the surrounding area or whatever. Um, they basically just said they can do whatever they want to do. <laughs> that's, about, that's about the only reply I got. from
0: yep, And that's what we are told too, like that it can, it, audits can happen randomly. Um, in the event of an audit, pharmacists have to have, or, or like the head pharmacist um, at each pharmacy has to be able to turn over two years of documentation for every single controlled substance prescription that's been dispensed, like at the drop of a hat. It, it's not like, oh, I'll get this back to you in a week. It has to be readily available it's, there's so many procedures that are involved in the, just the, the procuring the stocking and the dispensing of controlled substances. It's crazy. And then, um, I mean, like, I remember when I was in pharmacy school, this was at a time when electronic ordering, um, electronic prescribing was not fully um, implemented everywhere yet. And, um, they didn't have a lot of the DEA forms that had to be filled out by each pharmacy, um, in an electronic database. So I remember being on my, my little pharmacy rotation, um, being the, the lone pharmacy student, um, being in, like interning at a pharmacy and the, um, pharmacist was showing me how to fill out these order forms and you'd have to like fill out this form. And it was, um, um, to be done in triplicate and everything had to be filled out in blue or black pen and if there was any error whatsoever on this like order form for a medication then they you were told that like that could cause you to go to jail <laughs> um so you'd have to like scratch out the form um make it completely void and then start a whole new one um so now luckily those things are all electronic and that isn't necessary anymore but it's just it just kind of goes to show how intense all of those processes are.
1: So uh, one question I want to ask, um, one of my first jobs 15 years ago was working at CVS. And I remember when they were kind of new on the West Coast and now they just seem to have taken over. It's like CVS is this huge monolith and Walgreens is kind of behind them. Uh, so uh, my question is what's the impact of a more consolidated and corporatized pharmacy prof- profession? like? We're, we're definitely shifting the way we do pharmacy more and more towards this like streamlined kind of thing. And I, I kind of wonder what your thoughts are on how that impacts patients and people as a whole.
0: I think it depends. I think that there are, there could, there could be a good way to go about this if, if we could have a more uh, unified system of pharmacy in the States, but I, as far as what I've seen so far, I do not think that these monolithic pharmacy entities are doing it the right way. Um, it seems to be purely capitalist in nature, and with that, you know, I don't know if you guys saw, but I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Um, CVS got fined for understaffing their pharmacies, causing a whole bunch of serious medication errors in Oklahoma, and then within, and that was a New York Times report. And within that article, they had cited a previous article that they did in January where they were really calling, um, they were calling out CBS and actually uh, Walgreens and Rite Aid mentioning all of these pharmacists who've been writing to their state boards of pharmacy saying these are unsafe working conditions because you have these giant corporations putting quotas on us and making us fulfill key performance metrics um, at the expense of providing good quality patient care. So you hear about pharmacists who are filling prescriptions at the rate of, you know, a single pharmacist doing 500 prescriptions a day Whoa, is bananas. You know, if they're working, you know, 10 hours, so so you're, you're doing almost a prescription in um, a minute. And when you're thinking about, okay, with each prescription that comes in, pharmacist is supposed to like evaluate whether that's an appropriate medication for the condition, if they have access to see what that condition is. They also have to check to see if the insurance is going to cover it. If the insurance doesn't cover it, then the pharmacist has to bump it back to the provider and say you have to fill out this prior authorization, which is a whole other huge headache. Sometimes pharmacists will go the extra mile and find specifically what other medications the insurance will cover, but this all takes a lot of time. So when we're used to, you know, being on the other side of the counter in a pharmacy and we are, are not able to comprehend why it takes 30 minutes to count out 30 pills of a one, once a month prescription, it's because there's so much else that's going on behind the scenes um, with, you know, checking the safety of these things, checking the insurance. Um, if, if there are any issues with like the, number of medica- like the number of pills that are prescribed or the dose that is prescribed the pharmacist should call the physician who prescribed the medication and talk about it and figure out what the prescription should have been. Um, And in certain situations, that means that sometimes the physician has to write a whole new prescription. So then the pharmacist has to wait for this whole new prescription to come through their system and then start over um, with checking the appropriateness and accuracy and all of that. So then we're also saying, you know, us clinical pharmacists are saying, but pharmacists need to be doing more clinical work. Um, not so much the, the, the counting and, and, you know, ringing people up at a cash register, but how could we ask them to be doing this more clinical work, like giving people immunizations and doing, you know, medication reviews that take 30 minutes a piece when they're being told you have to, pres- you have to fill a, one prescription a minute. You know, it's, it's bananas. So I think that um, I, I don't think we're doing it the right way in the States with, with trying to create these more um, cohesive systems. I think wow. that, um, I, I did my training at the, at the VA and um, for all of the, the negative reports people have heard about the VA, um, I got really lucky in the, the um, hospitals that I worked in and they were really great and I didn't hear about these negative reports so much there. And I got to practice as a pharmacist and the cool thing about the VA is it's one medical record. And all of the pharmacists have access to that one medical record. So every single prescription that comes through could, if you have the time, be checked against each patient's medical record. And you can check for all of the drug interactions because the patients are only getting their medications from the VA pharmacy. Um, You can check um, to make sure that each medication is not interfering with patient's other medical illnesses. You can check the person's uh, kidney function and liver function to make sure that the dosing is safe. So there are good, safe ways to have a unified system. I just don't think that what is happening in the private sector is is going about it the right way at all.
1: Yeah. From what you're describing, this is like this huge convoluted mess. I was wondering if you have an opinion, like maybe Medicare for all or a single payer healthcare system would address some of these issues?
0: I think so. I mean, I just think that if we were able to take out the profit incentives of so many components of healthcare, including pharmacy chains and insurance companies and all of that, we would be able to put so many more resources to just ensuring patients, patient safety. Um, I love the idea. I mean, like I know there are a lot of people who would cringe at the sentence I'm about to say, but because I had such a good experience at the VA, I would love the idea of having a VA like system for all Americans because it really can ensure great um, patient safety. And um, you know, I just, I think that there are so many positives to, to that, but again, it's, it's, Having the right people sitting at the, the table um, to make those decisions and make sure that it's it's for the good of everybody and, and um, not at the expense of quality healthcare.
3: Um, to be clear, with prescription drug monitoring programs, you, you you do have insight from behind the counter what other drugs a, a patient is being prescribed and elsewhere, uh, correct?
0: With you, you have insight for controlled substances, and so I when I said about you know making sure that you have access to all of the medications a patient is on. I was kind of commenting at it from from more of a global perspective that not just, um, I'm not only worried about, you know, potential like opioid overdose, if if somebody is prescribed an opioid and a benzodiazepine and some other sedative medications, certainly that's an issue. And yes, you can look at, and you can see all of those in prescription drug monitoring um, applications, but you know, the other thing too, that would be nice is, is being able to see all of a patient's other medications, which to be clear, you know, if a person's only getting their medications at one pharmacy, then you can, you can see everything. But, um, this day and age, I think, I mean, I have a couple, like I, depending on what pharmacy is closer to me with whatever doctor I go to, I'll probably just have the doctor send my prescription to that other pharmacy. So, you know, everybody's a little bit different and, and, um, I don't think we can like count on that necessarily for everybody to go to like one pharmacy alone.
2: Yeah, there, there's like very little context in PDMPs. That's constantly what I hear is that like, it's like, it's like, it's like good to have that information, but it's also like extremely narrow uh, what that information tells you.
0: It's also wildly misleading because they have like the one that we have in Michigan, it gives you this I think they call it like a Narx score or Narx score or something, which is supposed to be some sort of indicator of overdose risk, and it's completely inaccurate. Like it doesn't, it's it tells us no information whatsoever. If somebody is on buprenorphine, then they have this like wildly high, whatever that Narx score or whatever it is, um, while they could be on like four different sedating medications and um, prescribed all by one person and then they have like a lower score. But then if they have like sporadic medications um, that are controlled substances that are prescribed by a few different providers, but they've only had, you know, three days supply over the last two years, just because they've had different prescribers, they will have a higher narc score suggesting that they should be at like a higher risk of, of overdose or higher risk of misuse or something. It's so useless. <laughs>
3: And it um, seems like a bit scary that it takes the individual you know the individual out of the out of the equation um metabolization uh speeds of of you know a person 's body um you know the 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 kind of, like some people 're going to metabolize oral medication faster than others um i mean the idea of having a single score uh or even just a single system that would apply to every person that goes to a doctor um just seems kind of scary to
0: me. Um. Yeah, I agree.
2: What, one thing I wanted to, you know, like a, another reason why we wanted to have a pharmacist on the show is like there's been a, a couple sort of recent like sort of blow ups, you might call them on social media involving pharmacists and the the one that, that we've talked a bit about offline, like this like super scandalous accusation that was floating around Twitter about a pharmacy student at Temple, which is in Philly where Chris lives. So that this like guy allegedly sent um, a message saying that he encountered a quote junkie overdosing on the street and the dude purposefully made sure that this person died by neglecting to perform like any life-saving procedure, CPR, naloxone, and in, in like just like, you know, for a healthcare provider, for a pharmacist to to do this, just, like, really disgusted people. And, like, the kicker to this message was, like, just, quote, saved a lot of tax dollars. And so, like, that's just a very, like, gross, disgusting thing. And, you know, before we, like, you know, excoriate this person, like, we we have not Confirm that this person really said this and we reached out to temple and they put out a statement and they're investigating We confirm that there's an investigation and but like this really spread like wildfire And I think people latched on to this and it was retweeted thousands of times You know like whether it's true or not. I think it really tapped into Something that people who use drugs or people with addiction or in the pain community like that they've had stigmatizing experiences and bad experiences with pharmacists and i think like there's a bit of a bad rep in the the sort of drug policy and harm reduction world that not like you but just some pharmacists definitely have and and like you know w- without commenting on like whether he really said this or not we don't have to get into that but just like when you saw this sort of floating around like what was your sort of gut response like what did you feel like when you saw everyone sort of piling on a pharmacist in training
0: i think the first thing i felt was embarrassment that that a a person who will potentially be my colleague someday could have done that to somebody to um it, it was like shame um and i think it's it's shame for the profession so yeah so you know i think that my, my first emotion was, was absolutely one of shame and then wanting to do something. So I really feel like um, with someone so early on in their career, it, it's such a, a wonderful opportunity to intervene at a time when people's opinions aren't yet made up about how they feel about different patient populations or different people that we can teach them to be better. We, we can absolutely shape their minds and shape their opinions um, to, to change them and so that they, they don't want to do that, so that they realize how wrong that is to think that way. I had a little bit of experience tr- trying this when um, my, in my previous life I was a faculty member at Northeastern College of Pharmacy. And I would get one lecture, so students would get one lecture on substance use disorder Um, throughout their four years of pharmacy school, and I was supposed to cover opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder, or that's, those were the the substance use disorders I decided to include in my lectures, but I would spend the first, like, 30 minutes of this lecture talking about addiction, and what it does to the brain, or what it does to people, and and how people develop addictions, and, and what's going on in their lives before that's happened, and I, I think I, I vividly remember a moment where I, I was standing in front of the, the class and the students were kind of like, they're pretty engaged with me. And I said, you know, now does anybody still think this is a choice? Like, does anybody still think people are, are waking up at, you know, however, you know, whatever, 18 years old, 11 years old, whatever, and saying, like, I, my goal is to be addicted to something at some point in my life? And I had like a really great, candid conversation with these students who didn't really get it yet. But by the end of the conversation, I felt like they did, and they were all willing to accept that there's just so much more that's going on. I think that that is something that is critical for pharmacy educators to be teaching the students in their classes that you know the it's not a moral failing, um, and that people aren't just you know aspiring to to develop any sort of illness um you know people don't wake up at 11 years old and saying i want to have a heart attack at 50 either so why do we think that, that anybody does that with um, developing substance use disorders we can educate people out of that mindset
2: and, and that's like what some of the research I, I dug up basically says like like there's been sort of studies assessing the attitudes of pharmacists on certain topics like heart reduction and and like you know the ethical dilemma quote unquote about like giving someone who injects drugs syringes and like would you if you're a pharmacist would you give out syringes would you dispose of used ones like sort of asking those kinds of questions and 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 i and, I, and they they usually ask this to to pharmacy students and and without any education i think most see that and sort of like would Maybe defer to, oh, like, I don't know what the protocol is or the law is, like, I can't do that or I shouldn't do that. And, you know, like you're saying, like, after the students maybe learn about this and it's actually a bigger part of the curriculum than one lecture over four years, like, we could be graduating a whole bunch more harm reduction oriented pharmacists into this field, which right now, like, seems very badly.
0: Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. There's just so many opportunities. And, you know, to their credit, we see people like Lucas Hill who are trying to develop these curricula for different pharmacy schools um, that they could potentially implement within each pharmacy school. Um, and, and hopefully pharmacy schools will be serious about it and really, you know, do those things so that the students who are graduating are better educated in this in this area because inevitably they're going to interact with people who have substance use disorders and they need to know how not to be really just bad people (laughs) to them. Um, and, and to treat them like the patients that they are, just like any other patients that they have.
3: I'd like to say, I'm surprised to hear you say the the pharmacists should have more responsibility, not less. And, and, um, because uh, you know, I, I think pharmacists are, are held responsible, and to such an extent that at one of the big chains, I, I think I know what, which one it was, but I'm not going to say it just in case it's wrong, it's red, just red lined out. It holds zip codes for certain you know, for scrapbing certain medication. Um, but um, you know, it, it, yeah, it, it seems to me that that the problem is that these, these, these decisions often go, in, in not in favor of the patient so the pharmacist isn't saying why aren't you writing refills for this schedule three substance that which group know, buprenorphine, say and, and instead you're, you're making this person come to your office every month um, you know and pay, and pay money you know it, it tends to be trending towards more the more restrictive side than the less restrictive side um, and I don't know if you want to comment on that like specifically but You know, it it could easily go the other way. Maybe this person is being under medicated.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, again, I I do think it it does kind of always go back to this. I, I would say baseline fear that the average pharmacist has when doing anything with a controlled substance. And and that's not to say that they're like shaking in their boots while they're standing behind the counter all day, every day, but. Um, it's it's just that there is so much scrutiny on these medications, um, and, and I don't think that the average pharmacist would say that that is warranted. I, I think that most pharmacists would say that they could do their job a lot better um, if they didn't have to jump through all these hoops and um, make sure that they were doing you know every little thing that the DEA demands. But the bottom line is they have to and. You know, I'm not here to defend pharmacists who do actively discriminate against patients. I actually was informed of, I think it was like later last, later in 2019, there's, I think there's like one pharmacy in the entire upper peninsula of Michigan that will fill a buprenorphine prescription, which is insane. So there are... A lot of decisions that pharmacists or corporations or whatever um, are making that are absolutely not in the best interest of patients. And I don't excuse them. Um, and I do think that we have a lot more opportunity to educate them out of that mindset to um, really providing much better patient care. And I just think that it's going it, to, it will take a while. Um, and it will take, you know, really changing people's minds, which. In this day and age is pretty difficult.
1: Yeah, that is insane. I, I would maybe even say that's malpractice in a way.
0: Agreed.
1: So, you know, one old question is, you know, I'm personally pretty pro-drug. I want to see the war on drugs end and, and see things like cocaine and meth and heroin, you know, be regulated substances. We've had episodes on the show about safe supply and everything. I want to talk about maybe Is it a good idea to make more drugs over the counter and have less interaction with pharmacies? Zachary was just talking on Twitter the the other day, like, is there any good reason that naloxone is not over the counter? Because naloxone can reverse an opioid overdose and it can't really be abused? Like, the barriers we put, maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
0: There's no good reason that naloxone is not over the counter. So... There are medications that would probably be completely fine and safe to be over the counter. Another one that often comes up is birth control. You know, we have all of these restrictions on women being able to have control over their own body, and um, wouldn't it be great if they could just go to their, you know, pharmacy instead of having to talk with a physician and get a prescription? But you know, maybe they could make the ones for themselves. There are. I, I do think there's a good reason for for having pharmacists involved in care, and obviously I'm biased in that because I'm a pharmacist. But you know, I, I think that we do have a lot to offer to the medical team, um, and I think that I would say we should be integrated into the medical team as opposed to less. But that said, um, there are certainly. Safe medications that could be over the counter. To be frank, there are medications that maybe shouldn't be over the counter. We talked about um, Tylenol. You know, you know, people die from from overdosing on Tylenol all the time. So, I think that the pharmaceutical manufacturers who decide where they are aiming for their medication to go initially uh, also might not have maybe sometimes patients' best interests in mind. And certainly, I'm thinking mostly with respect to naloxone because. Everybody who knows pretty much anything about naloxone knows how safe of a medication that is, and the manufacturers who developed those newer formulations really should have marketed those to to be over-the-counter initially, but they didn't seek over-the-counter status. They sought prescription drug status because they knew that they could then have insurance companies build for it so that they can charge exorbitant prices for those medications.
1: Yeah, I like what you said about birth control, because we've talked about this on the show a little bit as well, because these drugs should definitely be over-the-counter, not just hormonal birth control, like the so-called pill, but also abortion drugs, like mefepristone and misoprostol. These are the drugs that can safely induce an abortion, and they're very safe. Like There's all this, I, I, I would call it propaganda that says that they're dangerous drugs, when that's just not accurate, and it is, is a way of controlling women's bodies.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. The other thing that I think that this kind of highlights is this could be a really cool opportunity for pharmacists to be more integrated into patient care. There was just another publication that came out in, I think it was JAMA last week or the week before saying that people see their pharmacists on average two times more than they see their typical healthcare providers. And in rural areas, they see their pharmacists three times more than typical healthcare providers. Wouldn't it be nice if a woman who needed an abortion was able to go to their pharmacy that was a mile and a half away from their house and talk to the pharmacist about, about it, get counseled on it, and be able to access those medications that they needed for that without needing to go through a, a whole process with a physician. Certainly, we know that there's all these, these other states that have all of these crazy laws about um, what these women have to go through, but I think that they're could be a, a really huge, great role for pharmacists to play as these critical healthcare providers with over-the-counter medications and certainly medications that could be over-the-counter that at this point right now are not.
1: Yeah, I just want to riff on this a little bit. You know, um, we're in the middle of this pandemic, of course, and I think that has really illustrated, you know, a lot of the myths about some of these drugs shouldn't be easily accessible, especially, you know, back to abortion drugs, you know, mail order prescriptions for these abortion drugs have gone up a lot during the pandemic because it just kind of just reveals how safe these drugs are and how we need to remove the barriers that are there for them.
0: I could not agree more. And riffing off further, the other thing that we saw with the pandemic was oh, wait, you know, I guess you don't actually need an in-person visit the first time you are going to be evaluated for uh, opioid use disorder and getting a prescription for buprenorphine. Sure, you can just have a phone visit and your doctor can prescribe that for you and you can go and get it from your pharmacy. It just really highlights how there, we have these good medications that save people's lives and, and improve people's lives. And yet there are people who restrict them because they feel like they are the moral authority on what is right and wrong. It's gross. It's, it's totally inappropriate. And I think it which you know, I, I think that it's people acting in a clinical capacity when they don't have clinical knowledge to be doing so.
2: I agree with you. Yeah. Well, so we're almost at the hour. I mean, this has been a very, Illuminating conversation for me, like just just personally, like like when you were talking about how, you know, why does it take a half hour to count thirty pills? And and I think there's just so many experiences of of lay people who sort of get mad at pharmacists for delays or lags, and 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 don't really know that there's so much going on behind that counter, and also that like you're saying, like CVS and Walgreens, like these monolithic, very profit-driven, uh, corporations purposefully understaff these places and and make these work environments where precision and attention to detail is is a life and death matter and I think yeah like I just just talking to you I feel much more like you know I don't want to ever be that customer like yelling at a pharmacist or, or getting mad like like if my prescription takes a bit longer like there's probably very good reasons for that that aren't about you know the pharmacist like you know, sitting on Instagram instead of like counting the pills.
1: Yeah. It, it, we covered so much. Um, I thank you for your time. Like, I really learned a lot from this. Like, it, there's a lot of these procedural things about uh, the whole pharmacy structure that I didn't, I wasn't really that familiar with. So uh, I hope this will really resonate with our listeners.
0: Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. This was really fun.
1: All right. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon.
0: Thanks again. Bye.
2: Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast. There's also a Facebook page you can burn to the ground. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Marath, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by Soft and Furious. And I'm your co-producer, Garrett. Give us a follow where you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. And be sure to have a very nice night.